Amen. How's everyone doing this morning? Good, good. I'm doing well, thank you. Appreciate it. Uh, it is a pleasure to be here. It's, uh, man, I love, I love this church. It's, it's a blessing to my soul, and I hope that it is to some degree to yours as well. We're in uh, Luke chapter 24 today. We're going to have kind of a, a bridge sermon. We finished up Philippians last week, we, we, the pursuit of joy. Uh, and this sermon is going to be a bridge all the way for us to uh, Genesis chapter 1. We're going to start next week in a series called Creation and Fall. Just some foundational things that if we could wrap our lives around, uh, really help us understand who we are, help us understand the times in which we live, and help us understand uh, what it is God has called us to. So that's where we're going to be next week, but this week we're in Luke chapter 24. Uh, But before I get into that, I I, I did some research this week. Uh, The Dugas family, they're up at, is it Yellowstone? Is that where they're at? They're up at Yellowstone because they want to be on center line of the eclipse tomorrow. In fact, I did some research. Can you throw a map up there for me? Uh, So this, you can see August 21st, 2017. That's coming through the U.S. This is called the eclipse of the century. This hasn't happened for 99 years, and it won't happen again in any of our lifetimes. Um, You can see that if you're you're living in, uh, what was that place? Mount Vernon, Illinois. You'll get it again. You'll get centerline again twice in your lifetime within just a few years on April 8th, 2024. But other than that, it's not going to come close to Colorado in our lifetime again. So this is kind of a big deal. I didn't realize it was such a big deal because if you look on the right side, way over there, over in Asia, July 22nd, 2009, uh, that, that goes right over Okinawa. And we were there for that. And so I thought eclipses just kind of happen all the time. Uh, but they don't, apparently. Uh, and uh, I remember that feeling. We, we, were, we were talking this yesterday about it. Uh, if you haven't been a part of an eclipse, here we'll, we'll get what's called 92% coverage. So 92% towards totality is what they say. But uh, so that means 8% of the sun will still be, be peeking out. But um, it, it feels like when there's a big forest fire in the mountains and that just starts to cover the whole air and the sun gets diffused, it kind of feels like that. So that's what we're, that's what we're looking up. So I, I did some more research on this. The, uh, you know, the sun is 400 times bigger than the moon, but thank God on planet Earth, the moon is 400 times closer so that in the sky they appear virtually the same size. There's times where it can vary about three to four degrees, depending on the distance from those two things, but, but basically they're the same thing. So we get, when it crosses over, we get total, totality, and that's where that cinder line is. Now, don't think that you can drive up to Wyoming and do that tomorrow. Anyone have those plans tomorrow? Because 600,000 people are going to drive up there. That's like seven Bronco games letting out on I-25 and heading up to Wyoming, tripling the population of the state of Wyoming. And so gas stations have already ran out of gas. Uh, delis are wiped clean. And so I really was like, man, we really this is like a once-in-a-lifetime event. Well, we're going to miss it. You're probably going to miss it unless you head out now. So if, we'll, we'll understand if you have to leave. Uh, but this is kind of a big deal. Now, um, man, I, I, I had with me those, the glasses. You get, everyone got their glasses? These glasses, if you got the right ones, they, they, they block out 99.999% of the light so that you can when it covers over and it's at its best point, cover 92% of the sun, you can look up and see the sun. And, and, and hopefully we'll even be able to see some of what's called the corona 
of the sun. You know about the corona of the sun? This is an interesting fact. So the surface temperature, or the photosphere of the sun, that's about 6,000 degrees. But the corona, the, the outside part of that goes up to multiple millions of degrees. And it's kind of baffled scientists. Like, how is it hotter on the outside than right there? But uh, apparently it shoots plasma, some sort of gas, and that, that lights up. But that's a really cool thing to see. Now, if you're on the center line there, like the Dugas family will be, for two minutes and 43 seconds, you'll have what's called totality. And for two minutes and 43 seconds, you, you take the glasses off, and with your bare eyes, you look up, and you see the glory of the sun. You can't look at it with, with any other time, but you see the glory of the corona. And apparently, that, that's a big deal. I, I thought it was just a shadow, but apparently that's uh, a big deal. But uh, there's some reports in the news, maybe you've seen this, that especially for us here, we, we can't look up at that. Don't, don't try this at home uh, unless you're tra- trying to go up north, uh, because uh, there's also some reports of some fake glasses that were sold on Amazon. So hopefully you didn't get yours off of Amazon, uh, but maybe you did, maybe you didn't. Uh, but that can actually do damage to your eyes. Now, why do I say all that? I say all that because as a pastor, every pastor in America is making an illustration with the eclipse today, and I felt obliged to. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, our sermon today is, is titled The Gospel-Centered Lens for Seeing and Saving Jesus. You could pr- bring up this title. Now, now you need a, a lens to see. You need the, the proper lens tomorrow if you're going to see the glory of the sun. Now, if you're in totality, then, then you don't need the lens. And, and the Bible tells us, 1 Corinthians 13, 12, that a day is coming. We see now as dimly as in a mirror, but a day is coming we will see clearly as, as, as Jesus face to face. That will be totality. But we don't live into totality on this side of eternity. We need a, a lens. We need the proper lens. But we, we, we come to the Bible. We know that the best way to see and savor Jesus is, is through his word. But the problem is when we come to this word, Sometimes we bring our own uh, background, we bring our own cultural expectations, we bring our own religious expectations, we bring our own self-expectations. And so we we put on a lens of self, hoping to see something of value. But what we really want to see when we put on the lens of self is something that, you know, that that makes much of me. That where are all the verses that say, man, God really loves me. God really loves Mark Oshman. Oh, how he loves you and me. We love that. We, we love to sing that. We love to talk about that. And we can find verses that, that, that back that up. And don't get me wrong. God does love you. He loves you more than you could ever fathom or imagine. But it's not because you're lovely and I'm lovely. It's in spite of us not being lovely. That why we were still sinners, the scripture said, Christ loved us and died for us. Uh, and so, but we come to this Bible, we talk about my Bible, my God, my God would do this, my, and, and we have our life verses, and, and uh, churches have picked up on this. One of the ways that, that we found in the 80s to get a lot of people in church is to make sure every sermon and every sermon series really just speaks really practically to everyone per, every person's life. Now, don't get me wrong again. This Bible is very practical. It will speak to your life and your marriage and your job and your money and your career and your hopes and dreams. It will do all that, and we will as well. But the Bible is not primarily about you. And that's a beautiful, glorious truth today. The Bible is radically God-centered. 
The story of the Bible is not about your story. It's about his story. And when we change, take off the lens of self and put on this lens that Jesus is going to get, give us today, not only will we see and savor him, we will find our place even better in the story. And it'll make so much more sense to us in that. Well, Jesus is going to show us the, the, the problem or, or give us a diagnosis. He's going to give us a remedy or a prescription. And then we'll see the results in this passage. Oh, here's my goggles. So there you go. These are trustworthy. They're from Grease Monkey. So um, <laughs> what? I can't see you laughing at me, but I can hear you. So um, I'm going to try those tomorrow. We'll, we'll see how I look next week. Um, but... Grease monkey. Okay. Um, Luke chapter 24 is where we're at today. This kind of bridge illustration. Jesus is going to give us a diagnosis, a prescription or remedy, and then um, we'll see the results. I love this passage. And uh, unlike I do normally where I read the whole passage and then unpack it, because uh, it's a longer passage, I'm going to walk us through it. But as I walk us through it, as always, I ask you to listen carefully. This is God's word. And so uh, let me just set the scene for you, Luke chapter 24 for you. It is Easter Sunday. We, we know about Easter Sunday, right? That's like the, 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 the pinnacle of our, of our faith. That's the, the, that's the resurrection day. That's, that's about joy and glory and exploding. Uh, everything has changed with Easter. But that's not the case where we find ourselves in Luke chapter 24. In Luke chapter 24, it's Easter afternoon. Uh, it's starting to get dark. You have a couple hours before it gets dark, and we're going to enter into the story there, and we'll see why that's significant. Luke chapter 24, verse 13, it says, that very day, Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus about seven miles from Jerusalem. Two of them. One of them's named later, later as Cleopas. The other one's not named. And so it's just this Okay, so it's Easter Sunday. Jesus has risen from the graves. He has appeared to some people along the way, but not everybody knows it yet. Uh, now, if you were Jesus and you conquered death in the grave, where would you appear? appear? I would appear in the temple and just kind of be like, ta-da, I told you. But no, that's not what Jesus does. He, it shows the great condescension of Jesus. He comes to two unnamed disciples. Two, two, well, well, one's named Cleopas, but we don't know anything about him. And the other one's unnamed. He comes and he makes this his priority of the moment. And I love that about Jesus. See, see we love stories of Jesus' rescue and redemption from the worst parts of life. And that's good. And we should celebrate those. But for most of us, and for most of us today, the way that we're going to encounter Jesus is just in the quiet, subtle dailiness of life. In the opening up of the word and him walking along us with the road. And, and so this is his priority on that first Sunday. He there's these two disciples, and it says that very day, two of them were going uh, to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. So think of how long it takes you to walk that or mountain bike that or whatever. Well, they're walking it. So think about how long it takes to walk. Now, depending on the terrain, there's not really paved roads. There's kind of trails. Uh, so that takes two to three hours, okay? So it's in the afternoon. They start walking. Why are they walking out of Jerusalem? Well, they just observed Passover, so they may be going home, but I think there's something else going on. They're terrified. They're 
they're absolutely crestfallen. They're, they're so devastated in this moment. They, they, their rabbi, who they had hoped would be the one, they, they, they would hope that would be the one that would throw off the shackles of Rome and the oppressors, he got murdered. And not only murdered, he was betrayed, and then he was arrested, and then he was uh, tortured, and then he was murdered. But he was murdered also by the, own, by the Israel, like the Jewish leaders. How could this happen? Everything they thought they knew about Jesus was wrong, or they thought so. Not only that, rumors have began to spread that day that, that, that the body of Jesus is gone, and the Jewish leaders don't like this, and so they're on a manhunt. They're looking for the body, and they're probably looking for anyone associated with Jesus, so they're asking questions. Do you, do you know anyone that was a follower of this guy? We need to find him, and they're wondering, uh, are we going to be arrested? Are we going to be tortured in the same way we saw Jesus tortured? Are we going to face the same kind of death that he faced? Because that would happen when some of these rebellions would rise up, and so they're terrified, but they go out in daytime because as dangerous as it is to be caught by the Jewish leaders, it's more dangerous to be on ancient Near Eastern roads at nighttime when packs of wild dogs would come out and eat you alive or when roaming roves of robbers and bandits would come and rob you and leave you for dead or what if you ran into some of the Roman soldiers and who knows what they would do to you and so they head out of Dodge and they begin to walk towards Emmaus. And they were talking with each other about these things, all that had happened that weekend, and while, all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. That sounds pretty cool, right? Except for the next word. But their eyes were kept from recognizing them, him. Now, there's lots of reasons why our eyes can be kept from recognizing Jesus. But I think in the context of this passage, the reason why is because Jesus is, going, is doing to them physically of what's true of them spiritually. He's not allowing them to see him physically because they can't see him spiritually. And he's going to reverse that all later in the story. So their eyes are kept. So they're, now there's three of them, Jesus and two disciples walking along the road. And he said to them, uh, what is this conversation you, that you're holding with each other as you walk? Jesus kind of plays ignorant. So, so what are you guys talking about? And then I love the response. And uh, well, not quite the response yet. It says, and they stood still looking sad. So have you ever been so devastated that you're walking, you're discussing, someone comes along, and like, so what are you talking about, guys? And the news just breaks on you once again like a wave, and you just stop, and you're like, I can't even take another step. Their world has been terrified. Their, their world has been totally torn down. They're living as if there was no resurrection. Think about that. These are the people that should be the most explosively joyful people on the planet in this moment, and yet they're the opposite. They don't have eyes to see who Jesus is and what he said he would do. They didn't believe him. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? Translation, are you the most ignorant person in the whole world? 
<laughs> I love that. because No, he, he's, he's the wisest person. He knows everything. He's, he's kind of setting the hook. He's letting them take the line. He's like, are you an idiot? Have you not heard about what happened in Jerusalem this past weekend? He's like, mm, tell me about it. Verse 19, he said to him, what things? He kind of just lets him run with the line for a while. And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth. Now notice their descriptions of him. They don't have totality. They have only a partial view. What they have is true. It's just not the whole truth. They said, a man, which was true. Jesus was truly man and truly God. A man who was a prophet. That's true as well. Mighty in deed and word before God. That's true as well. And all the people. And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. That's all right so far. But then look at verse 21. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Do you see the great tragedy here? He did redeem Israel. They thought, the lens that they were looking through said, when Messiah comes, man, he's going to throw off the shackles of the pig-eating Gentile Romans, and he's going to restore the kingdom. And that's all we want to hear about. That's all we want to see. That's why we want to get close to him. We want to be the best. The, the, The disciples had the same problem you and I do. They like to see the world through their own lens. And so they would have this argument often. Who would be the greatest in the kingdom of God? And Jesus would, in his patience and mercy, would come and say, God, you're missing the point. That's not what it's about. Trust me, you don't want to be on my right and my left when I come into my kingdom. You don't want that, but that's for the Father to decide. And so they were just like, no, we can only see this. This last week in our gospel community, we went through Mark chapter 8, and in there, uh, Jesus says, who who do the people say I am? And some say Elijah, and some say a prophet, and and others say John the Baptist. And, And he says to Peter, but who do you say I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the Messiah. And Jesus said, you're right, but God, but, but God revealed this to you. And then the very next verse, Jesus begins to talk about, hey, hey I'm going to go to Jerusalem. They're going to torture me. They're going to murder me. And, and Peter's like, no, 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 no. That's not what happens to Messiah. And Jesus, you know, you remember Jesus' response, get behind me, Satan, for you do not have the things of God in mind, but the things of man. They just could not fathom a Messiah who would die. So here's the problem with having the wrong lens on. When we're spiritually blind, I think it's the next slide there, our spiritual blindness eventually leads to hopelessness and despair. So so if we come at this Bible with an American kind of a health and wealth perspective, and and we read through it, and we pick through the verses, and pick what my my wife wrote about a couple weeks uh, ago, uh, spiritual chicken McNuggets. You know those things? They're good every every once in a while, but you can't, you really shouldn't eat them for every meal. And we do that, right? Like, oh, I like this verse. Highlight that. I like this verse. I'll highlight that. I'm going to memorize this verse, and I'm going to put that on a coffee cup, because that would be a great coffee cup verse. If we only do that with the Bible, then your, your diet is spiritual chicken McNuggets. And the problem with that is a man-centered view of the gospel, a man-centered view of the Bible is that when God is only there to make you happy, healthy, wealthy, safe, and secure, what happens when life hits and that doesn't happen? You lose hope. You, you have despair. There, there, is a, there is a kind of um, uh, depression that will set in If you think God only wants you wealthy, what happens when you lose your job? Has God let you down? 
What happens when your child gets sick? Has God let you down? See, again, these people should be the most explosively joyful people on the planet, and they're not because they're spiritually blinded. That's the diagnosis. And then Jesus moves on to the prescription. Well, not quite yet. He says, yes, and beside all these things, it is now the third day. They're going to give evidence that everything that Jesus said happened did happen, but they still can't see because they're spiritually blind. Yes, and beside all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of them, some of those who were with us, went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. So even when confronted with the evidence of what, what Jesus said time and time and time and time and again would happen, they so much interpreted the Bible in their, through their own lens that they could not see it. So there's the, di- there's the diagnosis, but here's the prescription. Jesus takes over the conversation, verse 25, and he said to them, Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. So here's the implication. When Jesus talks about the prophets, and he'll talk about that, he's talking about the two-thirds of our Bible that, well, quite frankly, gets less read, isn't quite as highlighted, not as many spiritual chicken McNuggets in there. And he's saying, oh, he doesn't say, look, I get it. The Old Testament, that's hard. <laughs> I mean, you got the genealogies in there and the law. What's up? I get it, guys. I could see how you could miss it. No, that's not what he says. He says, you're foolish. The implication is those that have the Scripture are responsible for knowing the Scripture and believing the Scripture. Okay? So we say this is the Word of God. We say God has condescended to, to speak to us, to unpack his truth about who he is to us. And we say, mm, it's hard. Like, Jesus calls us fools. We are fools if we take this lightly. If we say, I tried once to read Genesis. I got through that, but then in Exodus, I yeah, mean, that was hard. He doesn't make any excuse for his word. He says, you're foolish. You're slow of heart to believe. The word was clear. It wasn't difficult. He says, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Wasn't it clear? But again, Jesus is patient with them, and he's patient with us. And he begins the greatest Bible study the world has ever seen. Verse 27, and beginning with Moses, that's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and all the prophets. He interpreted to them in all the scriptures, that's Genesis through Malachi, all the things concerning himself. So Jesus says, you should have known this, not because I told you it, dozen times, but because you have, they probably had most of it memorized, but they didn't believe it. And so what does that mean for us? He, he walks for the next two hours and beginning with Moses, beginning in Genesis, he, he says, he gives us a lens. See, see it's, the Bible is not a disconnected set of stories. 
See, we treat the Bible lightly when we say, you know, it's a roadmap for life. And, you know, I can't be that critical about that because there are some maps in the back here, but uh, that's not what the Bible is. Or we say Bible, B-I-B-L-E. That's the basic instructions before leaving earth. Yeah, that sounds good and all, but that's not what the Bible is. Or, Or I've heard it said, or maybe I've even said this as a pastor before, the Bible is 66 books. It's 66 love letters from God to you. You're like, that sounds awesome. Except when you read it, and you're like, that's a weird love letter. Have you ever read Nahum? It's all about God's wrath towards the Ninevites. And you're like, he needs some work on his love game. I mean, I don't, I don't get it. And so we get disenchanted. We're like, it's boring. It doesn't make sense. It, 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 it's hard. And, and Jesus says, oh, let me tell you. Let me give you this lens. And so the, di- the, the remedy is Christ gives us a gospel lens for seeing and savoring him throughout his word, beginning with Moses, going to Malachi. Jesus says when you go to the Old Testament, that's the best way for you to see and savor him. That's an amazing truth. Look, if you've been rescued by Jesus then that means that his spirit lives in you. His spirit wants to reveal more and more and more of Jesus to you. And we can do a whole bunch of weird spiritual hoops and do, a, do retreats, go off on a mountain and just kind of chant for five hours and think we're going to encounter God. But Jesus says, you want to see me? Go to Genesis. You want to see me? Go to Exodus. And don't stop there. Go to Jeremiah. Go to Malachi. Go to Nahum. So how? How, how does he do it? Well, well, he just says he went through it all. We, we think, now that, 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 that would trump any class I ever took in seminary, and it would. Um, and we're like, man, if I could have just been there with Jesus during that, those two hours, man, that would have been an amazing Bible study. But the whole point Jesus is making is that you didn't have to be there. We have the scriptures. We can see Jesus in them. So he goes on. So there's, there's the the prescription or the remedy. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further. I, I don't know why, but he did. And, uh, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is towards evening, and the day is now far spent. The sun is setting. You, you've taught us so much about the Messiah, and it's dark, and it's dangerous out there. Just come with us, please. So we have heard it ourselves from his own, um, wait, I'm sorry, I, I, I went to the wrong pay. Sorry. Uh, so they drew near a village. Okay, there we go. But they urged him strongly saying, stay with us. So he went to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he takes the seat of honor. He took the bread. He blessed it. He thanked God for it and broke it. And gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And I love this. And he vanished from their sight. What in the world is that all about? Jesus does something that he probably did hundreds of times with his disciples before. And all of a sudden, it begins to come into focus. And here is the rabbi lifting up the bread, breaking the bread, giving thanks to God the Father. And all of a sudden, they see. And then all of a sudden, he's gone. What's going on there? Here's what it is. Here's what's going on there. It's a great kindness to them and to us. Because as he disappears, he's already shown them 
It's like, look, you don't need to see me with physical eyes anymore. You can now see me with the eyes of your heart through all that I just taught you in the word of God. So he says, there's a way to continue to see me, continue to go back to this. Like I said, next week we will start a series, about a nine-week series, on Genesis 1 through 4. It's going to be called Creation and Fall. There's some meta-narratives of the Bible. Last, last series, we got down into the weeds, and we got into Paul's letter to the Philippians. But this series will be a more of a 30,000-foot view. There's some major structures of the Bible. This is one story telling one thing about the goodness and grace of God and his plan for salvation. But we're going to look at the first four chapters. It's going to be Creation and Fall. The other parts of the meta-narrative are Redemption and Glorification. So we're going to take the first two, creation and fall, next week. But how? How does the, the, this two-thirds of our Bible show us the beauty and majesty of Jesus? Well, that's a lifelong, lifetime pursuit, but it shows us on every page, in some way, shape, or form, Jesus. It's either anticipating him, it's showing the need for him, it's showing a, a, how he's going to fulfillment, even in Genesis. Genesis chapter 3, uh, the, the serpent comes in and and the decree from God is that one will come, he will strike his heel, but, but he will crush his head, saying the Messiah, Genesis 3.15. There's this moment that's going to come that, that our enemy, greatest enemy, is going to be crushed, but he's going to wound the Messiah, and you can keep going on. See, the Bible is not a, like Aesop's fables. It's not little moral tales for you to put into your life. And so Noah, Noah is about Jesus. Did you know that? It's... Here's, here's a test for you, parents. Uh, I always, as a, as a parent of young kids, would go and see, oh, here's a children's Bible. Okay, let's see how they handle the story of Noah. Is it all cute and, and rainbows and, and animals, and we'll put that on our nursery? Or is it the most horrific event in the history of the universe? <laughs> well, besides the cross, it was the most horrific event. Uh, humanity was wiped out except for one family. They were saved by a wooden vessel. And in the same way, we are saved by a wooden vessel. The greater Noah will come, and he will die on that, and he will spare us from the wrath of God. It, it goes on. Abraham and Isaac, would, Abraham is asked to sacrifice his son, but God provides a sacrificial lamb. Jesus is our sacrificial lamb. The whole Old Testament sacrificial system is about Jesus. Every good Jewish boy and girl knew that the blood of lambs and goats and bulls would not ultimately cleanse them. They needed a better sacrifice so that when Jesus would come down the Mount, the Kidron, the Mount of Kidron, down the Kidron Valley, off of Mount Olive, and go up to Jerusalem at the Passover, the weekend that he would be murdered, there would be a literal stream of blood that he would have to walk over for all the sacrifices to try to propitiate against their sin. And his robe would dip in the blood of the bulls and the goats, and he would be the better sacrifice. Jesus is our Passover lamb, Exodus chapter 12. The Passover is all about Jesus. If we have the blood of the lamb on the doors of our hearts, the, the destroying angel passes over us. Jesus is, is in Hosea. Uh, Jesus is in the story of David and Goliath, right? We've heard those, those sermons, right? You know, you're David and you've got some Goliaths in your world and you've got to just find five good stones and you can take them down and with a little bit of help from God, you can destroy Goliath. It's ridiculous. 
It's ridiculous when we make the Bible about us because here's what happens. We say, yes, I do have some Goliaths in my life. I'm going to take them down. But what happens when they take you down again and again and again? We fail because we're not David in the story. We're Israel hiding off on the side. We're terrified. We're afraid. We can't handle, handle Goliath. But David is Jesus is the better David. He destroys the Goliath of our sin and our shame and takes that away. And so when we see Jesus as the story, as the main storyline, our hearts begin to rise, our hope raises up, and joy begins to fill our hearts. This whole book is about him. Hosea is about Jesus. Hosea, this story about his, his wife being a prostitute. Guess what? We're the prostitute in the story. We're the ones that have turned our back on God. We're the ones that have gone off after many other lovers. But, but Hosea goes and purchases his bride back with 30 pieces of silver. And Jesus is the better Hosea. He comes and with his own blood purchases us back as his bride. Nahum. Nahum's about Jesus. I did a series once through the Minor Prophets, and I got to Nahum. The series was called Jesus in the Minor Prophets. I got to Nahum, and I said, I can't preach that. The whole book is about God's wrath against the Ninevites. That's it. That's it. It's a four chapters. God's going to have wrath. I'm like, okay, so where is Jesus in this? Here's where Jesus is in that. We talked about it in our catechism, that every sin against a holy God will be met with justice. Every offense will, will find justice. It'll either find justice uh, on, on ourselves for under the righteous wrath of a holy God, or we'll find justice on Jesus on the cross. So Nahum's about it. The whole book is. So let me, let me read a quote from C.J. Mahaney. He says it this way. The only person, only the person who understands that the cross is the center of all human history can understand the Old Testament. Through the lens of the gospel, the Bible truly becomes one book telling one story. The story of sinful man, a holy God, and his plan of salvation through the substitution of himself for his people. That's the story of this book. Zoe, you didn't put that up for me? Sorry, you heard it. I did. What is going on? Do you have the next slide? Helpful resources? Okay, let's go with that. Okay, so I got some helpful resources for you to see and savor Jesus through uh, the, uh, the Bible. The first one, if you have little kids, this is a great one. The Jesus Storybook Bible. I love, even the tagline, tagline says, every story whispers his name. So this, this takes the stories of the Bible, repackages them for kids, and connects them to Jesus. It does a great job with Noah, by the way. It's not a beautiful little story. It's a tragic story. Uh, so that, that's for kids. And, and if you want to learn theology, you want to, if you've never read the Old Testament, just start with the Jesus Storybook Bible. That's a good start. Uh, I'm not joking either. It's a great book. Um, then for adults or maybe a next level, the book that helped me with writing this sermon, Jesus on Every Page, 10 Simple Ways to Seek and Find Christ in the Old Testament. That's another great book. Well, Let's go on to the result in this passage. What's the result? As they've, they've had the diagnosis, now they've got the prescription. Now they've seen Jesus for who he is, and he's taken from their sight, but, but they, they know everything, and they know how to see more of him. Verse 32, they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened uh, to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour. What hour is it? 
Now, they've had dinner. They've gone. They've, the sun's probably set, right? They, they, they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. How far is Jerusalem? Seven miles. I mean, I don't know if any of you have walked 14 miles in a day, but that's not an easy feat. They get up and they return to Jerusalem. Now, remember, now it's dark. The pack of wolves are out. <laughs> the dogs are out. Uh, the bandits are out. Maybe the Roman soldiers are out. This is a dangerous thing, but, but you know what? They don't care. Because when you see and savor Jesus, it transforms your life. It gives you joy. It gives you courage. And it gives you purpose. The next slide, please, Zoe. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, it transforms. It, when we see and savor Jesus through the lens of the gospel, we discover our purpose, courage, and joy. The, these people were afraid. They were getting out of Dodge. Now they've seen Jesus, and it doesn't matter. And that happened with all the disciples, by the way. They would face horrific deaths after their encounter with the risen Christ because they had purpose, joy, and courage. And, and they went to Jerusalem seven miles, and they found the 11, and, and those who were with them gathered together in that locked room saying, and, and the 11 said, the Lord Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he, had, how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. So they tell this story. They're, they're so excited. They, they don't care. They, they, they don't care if they die. They go and tell the disciples because that's what good news does, by the way. Good news makes you want to share the good news, by the way. It, it, there's just something about good news. We love good news. And so, for example, last night, uh, it was getting close to bedtime, but we said, hey, kids, uh, we're going to have root beer floats. And two of my daughters were upstairs, and uh, we said, Hannah, come down here. We're going to have root beer floats. She's like, root beer floats? You know what she did? She didn't run down the stairs to get her root beer float. She ran back into her bedroom to tell Abby, hey, we can have root beer floats because you want to share the joy of good news. And so she got Abby and came down. We had, that's what the gospel does to us when we see Jesus for who he is. Man, we have courage. We have joy. We have purpose. I, I bet these disciples told that story every day of their life until they died. Uh, and I, I think we have evidence for it. You get into uh, the, the book of Acts. In fact, later on in this passage, Jesus appears to the disciples and it says again, starting with Moses, he taught that he did the same Bible study with them. Uh, but, but in Acts chapter 2, Peter at Pentecost gives this sermon and he starts in Genesis and he walks through the whole scripture and he shows them Jesus and people get saved. And then Stephen in chapter 6, he starts in Genesis and he walks through the scripture and people get saved. They show Jesus through the word of God. That's our job. That's our purpose. Our purpose is to proclaim the good news. But those that have the scriptures are responsible for knowing and believing and sharing the scriptures. Well, let me just conclude here. We, the world needs us to be radically Bible-saturated and Jesus-focused. Radically Bible-saturated and Jesus-focused. He is the only hope of the world. As we savor and see and savor Jesus, we become more like him. As we see and savor more of Jesus, we will joyously and courageously take this message out to a world that desperately needs him. To that end, I want to pray for us. And then we'll come to the communion table once again.